The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. I'm back, back from parental leave. About two months ago, my wife had a baby. Our daughter arrived right on time, and she's perfect. She's chubby and healthy and cute, and she sleeps pretty well for a baby. And me, well, I'm tired. I'm so excited to be back in the production chair. I've missed thinking about work, and I've really missed talking to all of you every week. But I won't lie, this is an adjustment. It's demanded more from me than I thought. Baby, pandemic, work. I guess this is what you might call a life moment of maximum stress. And so you'll understand why I'm so excited to bring you an episode on mindfulness. It's a helpful tool for dealing with these moments that are exactly like this. And beyond that, I believe that knowing one's own mind is a path to a certain kind of freedom. Scott Schutz, my colleague, he's head of mindfulness and compassion programs here at LinkedIn. He's just published a primer on how we can put mindfulness and compassion into practice. It's called The Full Body Yes. Change your work and your world from the inside out. Here's Scott. I have two parts of my job. Mainstream mindfulness and two is operationalized compassion. So mainstream mindfulness is just what it sounds like to make meditation or mental exercises just as normal as physical exercise, where more and more people are discovering its benefits and more and more the science is coming out about how great it is for us. And we do things like meditation classes and community groups and speakers programs and 30-day challenges uh, with an app just to make it you know, part of our normal day. So that's one piece. The second piece, operationalized compassion. For me, this is where the juice is. Because look, we don't work or live in isolation, we work and live with other people. So how do we treat each other? That's usually what people think about when they think about compassion. And we can create a set of codes around how we treat each other or our employees from a company policy perspective. But then what I think is really interesting is how we think about our customers, because it's really possible to have an attitude of compassion about thinking about our customers in the way we design products, in the way we sell, in the way we service. And I really believe this is not just a feel-good thing. Like, this is how you conduct business. This is how you're really, really successful, both as an individual, but as an organization. I actually want to spend most of our conversation on that compassion piece. Cool. Before we get there, I want to dig into the mindfulness piece again. All right. Because I personally think that mindfulness is very good for me. I also think that running is very good for me. And if you ask me if I do them, I will lie to you and say, oh, yeah, no. <laughs> like I, I ran five miles. But what I mean is I ran five miles about 11 months ago. Uh-huh. Um, and the <laughs> same sure. with mindfulness. It's something that I really intend to do, but just can't seem to scrounge together a practice. And I'm just going to sure. guess that you you hear this. Absolutely. This is one of the the most frequent things. It's like when I do a poll. Oftentimes I'm speaking with a group and I'll do a poll. Who has never meditated? And it's like 5%. And who here has a regular practice, like everyday regular practice? It's again, 5 or 10%. And so everybody else in the middle has tried it, but it hasn't stuck or you know, it's irregular. And so my advice is a number of things. First is to ask yourself why. 
right? Because if we don't have a why, it's really hard to get ourselves to do something, you know? So it, just like running, I do, not, I do not like running either. And if I don't have a really clear why I, on why I'm going to go run, it just, it's just painful. And so for me, meditation or any practice like that, anything really, is what's your why? And if you're really clear on the why, so for me, as an example, I've been doing this long enough to know that when I don't do it, I can tell. Like I can tell, I become grumpier, I'm more irritable, I have more strain in all of my stress systems. And so I know that this is just good for me. It's good for my maintenance. And for some people, they, they haven't figured that out yet. And when they do it long enough, you start to notice the difference. And so that's the why. Then the second piece is building a habit. I really like James Clear's Atomic Habits book. And the quote that I use over and over from that book is, our lives do not rise to the level of our goals. They fall to the level of our systems. I'm paraphrasing a bit, but it's essentially, we have all these great intentions, but unless we build the system into our lives, nothing's going to change, right? So just like if I was running, I'd join a, a group of runners, a, a running club. So if Jesse, if you showed up at my house at 530 in the morning, I'm much more likely to get out of bed right? <laughs> <laughs> to go running in the same way for meditation. Uh, or mindfulness, whatever your practice is. You know, the apps are really good. The apps have gamification. They keep you on track. They use all the human characteristics. We love the streaks. Like we love to get the little bonus points. I was really into one of the apps for a while, maybe a few years ago. And yeah. I realized that I was competing with myself to get the most time. <laughs> yeah. And then I thought, well, but isn't that kind of like the opposite of what mindfulness is supposed to be doing for me? Yes and no. So when we're getting started, I think we use all of those human habits that we already have, right? We love to compete. Our ego loves to compare ourselves with others. So in the beginning, to start a habit, it's really useful for me to say, oh, I've got a three-day streak. Or if I am bragging and my ego is involved, I'm going to tell you, I have a 343-day streak on Headspace or whatever the app is. Those are all really useful to start the habit. Now, at some point, we realize the, the true purpose of, of the habit is much deeper than that, right? It's to, it's to be a better person. It's to reduce stress, to reduce anxiety. So going back to 13-year-old Scott, yeah, how did you come to the practice then? And has this really been truly a daily practice for you since then? Or have you come into and out of it? Good question. So for me at 13, it involved a spiritual path. And what I would say is, look, everything that we do at work at LinkedIn is completely secular. We found a way to talk about it in the completely secular. But I started with this from one of the wisdom traditions. And I would say over life, it has not been a daily practice. I've gotten better with age, but there's certainly been kind of an ebbing and flowing of my own practice You know, that often mirrors what's going on in life. Sometimes it's when things are really hard and I have no idea what to do next, I'll revert back to the practice you know, and kind of right the ship again. And so, but it has been an important part of my life you know, the entire time. I've just been more regular about it here and there. I've always thought meditating was a good idea. But like I said earlier, I'm just not that great at the self-discipline part of it. But Scott has some tips for how to master that. Like, for example, finding a meditation buddy. If you and I were going to be buddies on any habit, it could be whether we want to share gratitude or one good thing every day or meditation. The way it works is every single day, we're going to text each other or whatever our communication mode is of choice and tell each other what we did. So as an example, I have a push-up buddy right now who 
uh, we decided that every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we're going to share, you know, that we did push-ups. The same thing could work for meditation. It's like, hey, Jesse, I meditated 12 minutes. Or if, if we don't want to brag, it's like, I did mine today. How about you? <laughs> that the ego. Yeah, it's, it really is helpful because you're holding yourself accountable. And there's somebody else that you feel like, even if the other person doesn't care that much, you feel like they're going to hold you accountable. I love the gratitude buddy or the you know meditation buddy in this case. I like that too. I mean, that has been so useful to me in so many different ways to, mm-hmm. to think about that in relation to mindfulness. So, so how do mindfulness and compassion sit with each other? Sure. So mindfulness is about the development of self, right? It's, uh, you could say raising of consciousness. That's kind of a, a fuzzy word though. I I like to think of it as becoming the best version of myself, right? And when I become the best version of myself, then I can start to be more aware of other people. I'm more whole. I'm more able to serve others. And compassion is really, how do I show up in the world? How do I treat other people? I call it this journey from me to we. Because most of the time, we're just thinking about ourselves. We're just reacting to life. Everything going on inside of our head is about me, 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 right? And mindfulness helps us rise a little bit to see that there's more out there than just what's going on in our own minds. And when we're more stable from the mindfulness practice, then we're more capable of helping everyone else or just existing in a world that involves more than just us. So there's compassion for others. Sometimes it seems like compassion for others is actually easier than compassion for oneself. And certainly it feels like those two things are linked. They're very much linked. And some people, it's not universally true. Some people are very good at having compassion for themselves. And for some people, it's the very hardest thing. And so self-compassion practice is incredibly powerful. And one of the most powerful tools I've found, I learned this particular technique from Shauna Shapiro, is every morning as you're brushing your teeth or makeup or shaving, whatever, look in the mirror and say your name followed by I love you, like out loud, say it out loud. And when I first started doing this, probably when most people start doing this, like, oh, really? Like, <laughs> it's hard. It is. This is one of the hardest things I've learned. I mean, and, listeners but, can't see my face right now, but I'm definitely having like an awkward reaction. Like, oh, uh-huh. I don't know that I could do that. Right, right. And when we get to the point when we can do that without filter, without a judgment, without all the noise and shame and whatever that comes with it, we have really grounded and stabilized ourselves like that makes us really strong and then we're much more able to do that for another person right because all those same filters and shame and judgment exist when we try to have compassion for someone else we're going to take a quick break when we come back scott explains how mindfulness and compassion can help us to do better at work stick around the linkedin podcast network is sponsored by tiaa In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, 
We've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the LinkedIn Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. My guest today is Scott Shute, head of mindfulness and compassion programs here at LinkedIn. And when I first got to LinkedIn, I didn't really understand why we had someone dedicated to this. I promise you that my last company did not. But then Scott explained how this work is more than just a bomb for stressed out people. Our employees are by far the most important asset that we have as a company. So when our employees are at their best, then the company is going to be at, the, at its best. So that's just common sense. And then compassion, there's a tons of new research around compassion. Turns out that this me to we idea, when we move from just thinking about ourselves in a selfish way to thinking about the success of the whole, we ourselves are actually more successful. This happens at the individual level. This also happens at the company level. So at the company level, if, if a company really takes care of all of its stakeholders, meaning its shareholders, its employees, its customers, and then the broader environment or community it lives in, these are actually the companies that are more successful. By some studies, 14 times, 1,400% more profitable than the S&P average. So like, look, this is not just some feel-good thing. This is how you win. This is how you build a successful organization. I mean, that really came through in your book. What I really appreciated about the book is that you were fairly vulnerable about the things that had worked well for you, and in particular about the things that hadn't worked well for you. <laughs> it was kind of scary, I got to say. <laughs> my, my wife encouraged me to be vulnerable, and then I wrote three or four stories that went a little farther than maybe I was thinking at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Did she ask you to dial them back? We had some long conversations because, you know, there, was, there are a couple places where she's in the book, and she's like, well, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I guess we're doing it. I hope it helps some people. There was a particular section that I found memorable about your experience in Japan and your Mm. wife's miscarriage. Yeah. And I so appreciated you writing about that and writing about where you were with that and where you would be with 20 years more of life experience now. Yeah. And maybe it's because I also worked in Japan and I found it confounding to be an English speaker Mm. trying to navigate Japan. Mm. Maybe it's because I also have a two-year-old. You had a two-year-old at that point. Right. Uh, What was that like to write about? It was really painful. So the the story is I was in Japan. I was 32 years old. I was running a large organization. I was under incredible amount of stress. You know, and some of that's usually stress is what we put on ourselves, right? I had the story I was telling myself was that I had this big job and I had to do this and I had to do that and I had to do this. And again, me, 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 me. In parallel, what was happening was, you know, the long story short is my wife ended up having a miscarriage and it was a little bit confusing. I was at work 
and getting the stories, you know, her telling me this over the phone. And I ended up going to a work dinner instead of going home to be with my wife is the, is the short of it. And it was because I was so in my head, I didn't think there was, there was any way that I could get out of it. I didn't think there was any way that I could just leave. And that was the story I was telling myself. The truth with you know, 20 plus years of, uh, of history beyond it is, of course, we always have choice. Of course, I could have left. Of course. And maybe it had consequences, but not nearly the consequence of with our families. So what I've, what I've come to believe, really, and this is hard-earned wisdom, is that whatever job we're in, no matter how much we love it, no matter how much we're obsessed by it, in 15 years, that job will be reduced to three bullets on a resume or a LinkedIn profile. But we'll measure our success based on the relationships that we have, and often those are the ones with family. And so, yeah, I wish I could have had it back. I appreciate that story so much, Scott, because I think that headspace that you were in is something that is so universally identifiable. That feeling, I know that everyone listening has felt it, that the the constraints of the demands on your time are uh, intense and you you don't, you know that something has to give, but you you don't know what has to give. And in particular, your work feels stressful and you cannot imagine not coming through. And it makes me think in my own life about about a decade ago when my mother's sister passed away. And I, well, I was really on the rise at my job. I had a big story due. I was a writer for Fortune. I was nailing it. I was on a huge deadline. And I was also, you know, a journalist. I was, I was still pretty broke. And there was a question about whether I would drop everything and fly to Illinois. And that ticket was going to cost $500. And all of it seemed impossible. And then my stepfather said, no, this is really simple. And by the way, he was really big into mindfulness. I don't know if this was connected. Uh. He said, it's really simple. You sit next to your mom at her sister's funeral. And so I paid the $500. I left work. And a decade later, my mom remembers that I sat next to her. I don't even remember what story I was working on. Yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. But I don't know how you make those decisions in the moment. And I think that maybe mindfulness might be a path to helping us make them better. That's right. And look, there's no easy answer. There's no right answer. Well, I don't know about right answer. There's no simple answer every time, right? Each time it might be different. There might be sometimes we choose work, sometimes we choose family, sometimes we choose self. But what mindfulness does is it allows us to slow down and see things with true awareness. This is, this is really what mindfulness is, is to have the full 360 degree view without judgment, without emotion, right? Because normally we're looking at a tiny slice of life and we're so amped up on that slice of life that we tell ourselves only that story. That becomes our truth. And so mindfulness helps to see like what else is true. And that then from that place of groundedness and stability, we can make, let's call it better choices. I love that you draw our attention too to the way that we tell ourselves stories about our lives in any given moment. Yeah. Because once you realize that, mindfulness allows this, you can choose to tell yourself different stories. That's absolutely right. What we know is that happiness is not the stuff that happens to us. It's how we react to the stuff that happens to us. And this is not, again, just some feel-good thing. We know that when we move from pessimism to optimism, it changes everything. It changes our body chemistry. It changes the aperture of our lives. One of my favorite pieces of research is Dr. Brooks from Harvard did the study with people doing karaoke, 
And I don't know if you're scared of singing karaoke. Yes, uh, yes, I am. Maybe we'll do it now. <laughs> but she broke she broke this group into two pieces, and really. And in one group, she said, all right, before you go on stage, somebody's going to ask you how you're feeling. And you say, I'm feeling anxious. And just notice you're feeling anxious. And the other group, she said, all right, when somebody asks you, just notice you're feeling excited and tell them you're feeling excited. And then she's using a Nintendo Super Karaoke. <laughs> and so she gets an objective view of pace and pitch. First of all, just think for a minute. Imagine you're at a bar and you're going to get a score when you're done. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> the people who said, I'm feeling anxious, got accuracy scores in the 50s. The people who said, I'm feeling excited, got accuracy scores in the 80s. So the story we tell ourselves affects our performance. It doesn't affect any of the outside circumstance, but it absolutely affects our performance. Yeah. Well, you see that with athletes before big games, like already motivating themselves. That's right. And we're not, we're not hiding the bad. This is the thing. Like This is not just telling ourselves to be happy all the time. That's, that's not what I'm saying. We're aware of all those bad things too. And as we have that awareness, we're just shifting our attention a little bit. We're just shifting our awareness like, what is good? What could be true? And that makes all the difference in the world. And that, that runs counter to how humans are programmed, right? Because from the beginning of time, we have been programmed to look out for the danger. Anxiety right. has been the thing that has kept us alive when we lived in small packs and roamed the earth. That is right. We did not evolve from the chilled out apes. We evolved no. from the nervous <laughs> apes. <laughs> and there's a reason for that. Yeah. What do you hope that people come away from the full body yes with? Oh, well, first of all, I hope, I hope people read it. That's my first hope. But I think, look, I tell a lot of stories. There's, there's 35 or 40 stories all from my life or places like that. And I think there's a story for every person. I, I wrote a lot about my life because the truth is I'm only an expert in my own life. But I think these are the stories of all of us. So I hope that there's one story in here where you go, oh, yeah, I see it. I, I see what I'm doing to myself and I see how I could maybe do things just a little bit differently and I would be better off somehow. Yeah. What do you want people to bring forward from your book that we haven't really explored together? It's a good question. You know, in this time, we, we're thinking a lot about mental wellness and mental well-being. And there's a number of ways to come at that. Yes, a meditation practice can help with that. And we talked about building a habit of how to do that. But one thing that's often overlooked is service. So here's kind of a backwards way of thinking about it that is so powerful. When we are stuck, like when we're having a really bad day, we're stuck in our own head, we're stuck in our own stories, the most powerful thing that we can do, in my opinion, is to do something for someone else without any thought of reward, right? Just pure act of service or kindness or generosity or love. And this focus on someone else makes us lighter it's uh, it's really an amazing power. So I'd hope that people would join in on that practice. I love that. And I have experience of that, right? Like you, you help someone else. It's weird how good you feel yourself. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I had this experience where uh, one summer afternoon I was mowing the lawn. I have this tiny little lawn here in San Jose, California, and I don't like mowing the lawn. And I was grumpy on this particular day. And I was kind of upset with myself about being grumpy. And then I thought about my neighbor across the street and I knew that he was having a hard time. I could see his grass was starting to grow a little bit. So I decided I would just go mow his lawn when I was done. And as I was mowing his lawn, what I realized was like, 
I felt good. (laughs) And and when I was all done, I realized, wait a minute, I did something I don't like to do for someone. Let's be honest. I don't really care for my neighbor (laughs) that much. (laughs) I did something I don't like to do for someone I don't care about that much. And it made me feel good. Like, okay, there's something special going on here. Like, how do we get, how do we get more of that? That's pretty great. I'm sure a few of our listeners wouldn't mind if you wanted to mow their lawns, just saying. (laughs) (laughs) Then I started, I probably would start not feeling good. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you a lot. Thank you. That was Scott Shute. You can get more info on his book, The Full Body Yes, at scottshute.com. Scott has many more ideas for how to put the principles of mindfulness and compassion into practice. He's our guest this week on Hello Monday Office Hours. I really hope you'll make it. We'll be going live this Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern. You can find us on the LinkedIn news page or email us at hellomonday at linkedin.com. We'll send you a link. If you like the show, please take a moment right now to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You know, those ratings really help us. So once a month or so, I'd like to invite Sarah, our producer, to share one. If it's yours, I'll give you a free consult on how you're using LinkedIn. So, hey, Sarah. Hey, Jesse. Who do we have this week? We have Mark Young. He says, Hello Monday is a great show that helps us bring clarity and transformation to our work. Mark, that's exactly what we're going for. And I am so glad it feels that way to you. So drop me a note at hellomonday at linkedin.com and let's talk. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Uriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Michaela Greer, Samantha Roberson, Carrington York, and Victoria Taylor join us in this present moment each week. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You also heard music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel, so glad to be back. See you next Monday. Thanks for listening. I'm going down a little bit more. Down to that number, whatever that is. The fiddly fig is now downstairs in this bright, sunny spot in the family room where it is just glorious. People admire it as they come in and see its gloriousness. And now... Everybody comes by and sees that's one notch lower and they see the fiddly fig.